Hey, let's let's pray and uh, and and we'll get into this. Um, Lord, we thank you for this uh, time here this morning that we can gather together to make much of your love and your grace in our lives uh, to us in Jesus. And now as we come together and we gather around your word, we pray your spirit would minister to our souls, uh, truth to our hearts, that we would be confronted with our own uh, need of you, uh, that we would delight in your grace that you give to us, and that we, at our, harms, our hearts would be warmed uh, with affection for you and that we would just grow in esteem of Jesus and dependence on your spirit. Well, uh, today we're, we're continuing in this classic Psalms and we're in Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is perhaps one of the most uh, famous, con- famous prayers, if you like, of, of confession and repentance uh, that we find in the scripture. And if we read this Psalm well, if we read this Psalm carefully, it's a humbling Psalm. It's humbling and it's convicting, but it's also extraordinarily encouraging. But nevertheless, as encouraging as this psalm is, uh, preaching uh, through this psalm is fairly uh, confronting. As, as you kind of work in this psalm, I found that it exposes, makes me face my own inconsistencies myself. So I might be preaching uh, this, sharing this psalm with you this morning, but I'm also kind of in the um, experience of it working on my own heart. Indeed, uh, Charles Spurgeon, also known as the Prince of uh, preachers through the 19th century said this of Psalm 51. Such a psalm may be wept over, may be absorbed into the soul and then exhaled again in devotion, but commented on, preached on. Ah, where is he who having attempted it can do other than blush in defeat? Such is the nature of this psalm. Well, this psalm uh, is written by David. David is known and has gone down as Israel's greatest king. He ruled uh, Israel in their golden age, expanded their borders. He was probably uh, Israel's greatest warrior even, maybe, maybe shaded by Joshua. David was also a man of great... Um, uh, arts. He, he, could, he could write poems. He wrote most of our psalms. He's a great musician. His music would, would calm people like Saul the king. He's a great statesman and orator. David is truly one of the great humans. If he was alive today, we'd be throwing all kinds of stuff at him. He'd have a, a Miles Franklin Award. He might have a Pulitzer Prize, a Nobel Prize, may even have won a Grammy. Who knows? He would have been the recipient of a Victoria Cross, and there would be streets and there would be stadiums named after him. But perhaps the greatest epitaph, the, the greatest postscript to David, is that he's remembered as a man after God's own heart. God loved David. David loved God. This epithet, though, is more about the love that God showed toward David, the love that David experienced of God in his own life. And this psalm gives us a window into how how David experienced God's love through the crisis of sin. You say, 
course, David, God would love David. Look at how awesome uh, he is. Look at how awesome you just described him as being. But this psalm also reveals that David is one of the worst uh, offenders against God's law ever recorded in Scripture. Most people attach the context, the backstory of this psalm to David's uh, a sinful um, activity uh, with Bathsheba that included uh, the murder of Uriah. Uh, if you have your Bibles there, I kind of hope that you would get into the rhythm of bringing your Bibles because who knows what I'm going to tell you. But if you've got the, your word of God before you, you can kind of check up on me. But you would see at the top of it, it says there, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. And we can read about that backstory, that context in Second Samuel uh, from chapters 11 through to chapters 12. There we read about this, this one selfish moment that would lead to the neglect of, of leadership abuse of power, violation of marriage, destruction and disregard of David's family, of Bathsheba's family, of Uriah's family, the murder of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, the death of David and Bathsheba's child, the constant strife that would come and arise in David's family. Indeed, ultimately, uh, the war that would arise between north and southern Israel. All of this a consequence of, as the prophet Nathan exposes, the fact that David despised the Lord. That is what sin is. It's the elevating of your personal desires, your thoughts, your actions, as more valuable, more satisfying, more worthy, more authoritative than God's own word, God's own design for life. We despise God every time we elevate self over how God has instructed us to live and to be in relationship with him and with each other. David's success is matched only by his failure. David's devotion to God is matched by his despising of God, which is epic and unparalleled. It's interesting, as I've kind of been putting this psalm, this message together, I've, I've, I've taken some corrective comfort in this, if you like, because there are times in my own life when I wonder how it is that the same heart of praise can also be the same heart of selfish indulgence, of despising God's goodness and being harmful toward others. But here we have. A man after God's own heart going through this very same spiritual crisis. In 1 Kings 15, 5, the writer is contrasting the life of an evil king, an evil king of Israel, Abijam, who walked in the sins of other evil kings whose hearts were not holy for the Lord. Whenever whenever an evil king comes, he's always contrasted against David. They are unlike David, who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that the Lord had commanded, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. David's huge spiritual crisis, if you like. 
Now, the writer is not trying to say that the murder of Uriah due to the adultery with Bathsheba is David's only sin. That would be inconsistent with, with, with the general revelation of Scripture, inconsistent with its, its, its general revelation about the fallen state of humanity, or inconsistent with David's own confessions. Now, the writer is making sure that while David is continually pinned up as Israel's greatest king, greatest leader, most devout spiritual leader in comparison to other kings, David's desire was to please God. He is still like the rest of us, sinful, still capable of despising God, still in need of God's grace. David is not a man after God's own heart because of his prosperity, his success, his passionate spirituality. David is a man after God's own heart because in his failures, when God confronts him, he is quick to repent, quick to run toward God, not from God, quick to remember God's grace, not merely God's justice. Quick to call on his steadfast love and mercy. And we see in Second Samuel twelve thirteen, immediately when, when, when Nathan, who is the, the prophet and the agent of God's conviction in David's life, confronts David, David's response is immediately, I have sinned against the Lord. There are no excuses. There's no rationalizing. There's no stomping off in self-loathing pity or defensive uh, self-justifying arguments. Just a humble agreement, a, a humble confession with God that he has despised God's goodness and that he must repent. That is, he must totally change the condition of his heart from justifying and nurturing and covering up sin to confession, to contriteness, to killing off sin, to repentance. And God has now laid it upon David's heart to write up this psalm so that you and I can have a framework uh, to be likewise, if you like, to be able to approach God appropriately when we feel the conviction of sin, the seriousness of sin uh, in our lives, not hiding from it in shame, not, not self-loathing and working our way back uh, through, through justifying uh, our plights but with humble repentance that eventually leads to restoration, that eventually leads to the joy of our salvation and our experience of the favor and delight of God. This psalm is a classic because it tells us that no, no matter how badly you blow your life up, no matter how broken your life is, Running toward God's grace in repentance is the road to recovery, is the road to restored joy. This psalm, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is a prayer that helps Christians put back together a life that a sinful crisis has torn apart. This morning I want to look at three truths that emerge out of this psalm. It's not all that could be said about this psalm. In fact, the difficulty that I found with this psalm is just that there's so, it's so enormous. It covers so much, there's so much that could be said. We could spend a month in it. But we're just going to look at these 
three things this morning. And they're not necessarily chronologically moving through the psalm. They're just kind of three truths that come out of uh, this psalm this morning. And they are this, that sin is serious, that God is gracious, and that repentance restores. But firstly, sin is serious. David spends a lot of time in the first half of this psalm exposing the comprehensive nature of sin. Look at how many, how many times David repeats and uses different words to describe his sin. Sin, the word sin appears five times. The word transgressions twice. Iniquities three times. And evil appears just the once in verse four. David uses multiple words and repeats their applications to make sure that we get the gravity of sin. Sin is why this psalm is written. Sin is fundamentally a way of being is what's being described here. A condition of the heart that causes us to disregard God as good. As Nathan informed David, you you despised God when you did these things. These, These words are not about David's actions. Sins, transgressions, evil. They are words about his nature. Now David says, yes, I did at the core of my decision making. I have done evil. Sin is real. Sin is, sin is serious. Only once does David actually get specific about the activity of sin. In verse 14 where he makes this public um, and specific a confession about the action of his sin, the symptoms of, of sin that led to this psalm, where David confesses the murder of Uriah in an attempt to cover up his adultery, his blood guiltness. And David now has moved from rationalizing, from, from downplaying and from covering up sin to agreeing that sin has enslaved him and has untold power in his life to cause harm across all lines of David's life and in fact all the lives and, and, and relationships of David that, that he should be caring for as Israel's king, as Uriah's commander and chief, as Bathsheba's king and neighbor, husband to his own family, father to his own children sin is serious it never merely isolated to an individual but devastates all who are in relationship with the individual something David had the pain of experiencing for the rest of his life sin is serious it's serious in how suddenly it springs to life and enslaves us how serious and how deeply it harms us. Just a glance we read in Second Samuel. Just walking across his rooftop and out of the corner of his eye, he sees a woman bathing. The most beautiful woman you can imagine. It could be argued that David's first sin was that he was on the rooftop at all. He shouldn't have been there. The account starts when kings go to war. David should have been leading his army. He should have been with his men. He wasn't being a good king. But there is no doubt 
That David's failure to respect this woman's dignity, to retreat from viewing her, to, to, to not follow up with inquiring about her, would lead to his failure to honor marriage, the sanctity of life, his role as Israel's spiritual leader and king. Sin appears suddenly, just a glance of the heart that turns into an over-desire that masters your actions and harms so comprehensively and deeply. Sin is not a puppy. You don't pat it or feed it. If you do, it will turn into a lion or a bear. It will tear you apart. Sin is serious in that it causes trauma on the soul of the offender. David describes his eventual conviction and the ongoing consequences in his life in verse 8 as being as being like the crushing of his bones. And in verse 9 he pleads with God to turn your gaze away from me. The weight of conviction, the brokenness of his own self and of relationships with God and others cannot be bared. And he goes on to say it can only be relieved by the knowledge that God will blot out his sin. This is too much for him to carry. The sin is serious. It's It's never small. And we tend to reason sin away as small. A glance here, a lie there, a click there, uh, something over there. But it's always defiance of God. It's always despising God. And that is no small thing. And it brings destruction between us and God. It brings chaos between us and others. And in order to recover from sin, we first must agree that sin is a serious offense and that it is an evil that has untold uh, power to damage and cause pain in all relationships. Secondly, this psalm tells us that sin is serious, but God is gracious. Only once we have felt the seriousness of sin, that it is not a small thing, can we experience the splendor of God's grace, of his graciousness. Just as David gave us a comprehensive understanding of the pervasive nature of sin, he now gives us a picture of the comprehensive nature of the graciousness of God. Again, David uses multiple words to get across the full measure of God's grace. A measure that is more than adequate to deal with the seriousness of sin. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant or your or your tender mercy. David knows he is sinful. He knows that God has him on on two counts that are are punishable by death, according to the law, according to God's justice, adultery and proxy murder. And down in verse 4, David acknowledges that God will be well within his rights to execute justice on David. But David's first move is to appeal to the mercy of God. 
Something known as God's hesed. God's loyalty to loving his people. His loyalty to his people in spite of their continuous despising of him. David says, according to your said, have mercy on me. Don't crush me in justice. Cleanse me in mercy. In your mercy, unsin me. Remove my sin from before your eyes. This is the grace of God. The said. The grace of God towards stiff-necked people spoken about in Exodus 14. This is what David now appeals to. The known and declared mercy of God. It's the true mark of a heart that knows the heart of God. That God demands justice, but has made provision to choose mercy. In our deepest shame, when we feel like our, our actions will crush our very bones, here we run toward God, not from Him. Knowing God does not convict people of sin in order to destroy them, God convicts people of sin in order to heal them, to restore them, to bring them back into a right relationship with Him. God in His steadfast Love in his abundant mercy waits to restore you, waits to heal you, moves toward you in conviction. However, David knows that it is not a cheap grace. It's a costly grace. It's a grace that comes via sacrifice. And this, this understanding is born out of David's request to be, to be purged with hyssop. The language that David is engaged with here as he seeks forgiveness uh, is all about purification, about the purification and cleansing rituals that God has put in place for Israel, which are the, the responsibility of the priests towards the people. Hyssop was a plant, and due to the way it, it grew, it kind of acted like a bit of a brush. So priests would take a bunch of hyssop, as God had instructed originally in the Exodus, when they, when they painted the blood over the, over the doorways, and as God uh, instructed Israel in the book of Leviticus and in Numbers, and, and, and there it's described to dip this hyssop in the blood of a sacrificed lamb and then to, to sprinkle it over the person for whose sins this lamb has died. It's, it's called cleansing ceremony. It's the cleansing rituals that, 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 that God has provided for Israel. So when David says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean, he is referring to the process of, of sacrifice, specifically the, the sprink, sprinkling of blood. David knows that the, the penalty for his sin is death. And David also knows that God cannot overlook sin as though it didn't happen. Sin has a penalty, and that penalty must be paid. So God in his grace gives Israel this system by which, uh, in, in a substitutionary way, personal sin is recognized and, and, and laid upon a substitute. And by the shedding of its blood, you are cleansed of the sin, and you are covered by its blood. Does the language sound familiar? 
And David uses the contrast that in being covered by the blood, and I am made white as snow. The priest washes you clean. It's all symbolic. It, 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 it all represents realities. Namely that God's grace is greater than our sin. But this grace is not cheap. Nevertheless, it is only God's grace that restores a sinful heart. Wash me, David says. That is, cleanse me and I will be whiter than snow, creating me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me and I will know joy and gladness and I will sing aloud of the God of my salvation and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. God is gracious towards David. God loves David. God restores David because David moves towards God's mercy, not cheaply, not without being purged by a repentance that recognizes his need of grace that only God can provide for him. This psalm tells us that sin is serious. This psalm also tells us that God is gracious. And this psalm tells us that repentance restores us. If sin is to despise God, to disagree with his design for life, then repentance is is the shift from disagreement to agreement, from despising to devotion. To repent is to change your heart about something, but not on the margins, not, not on the fringes of life, but at the very center of who you are. It is the conviction of God that leads to repentance. This is not something we naturally choose to do. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that keeps our sin ever before our eyes, ever before us, so that we cannot merely make it small, so that we cannot just rationalize it away or become comfortable with it. I know, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before my eyes. This is what it feels like. To have conviction. This is what it feels like to move into repentance. Again, God's conviction is not to crush us, but to restore us. And repentance is the means in which we participate in that restoration. True faith always involves repentance. True faith always involves repentance. If you have never felt the crushing weight of conviction, then you have a heart that's comfortable with sin. And that is a very big problem. True faith always involves repentance. And true true repentance always involves faith. That is, it always trusts the grace of God, the hesed of God, the provision of God to deal with it. David knows that he has a heart problem. He knows that sin is not just some out-of-character moment, some moment of weakness that just, that, that just turns a glance in, on a roof into an affair, into murder, into the ruin of so many lives. In verse 5, David acknowledges that sin has actually dogged him his very, his very nature from the moment of conception. To be a human is to be fallen. 
David knows that this is an internal script that needs to be made new before any external activity means anything to God. Before any church attendance, before any tithing, any serving in ministry, any playing in the band. For it to mean anything, we need a new heart. A heart that first agrees with God that it is sinful. A heart that does not minimize the seriousness of sin, but painfully recognizes that it is offensive to God. That it first despised God before it was able to harm anybody in in these horizontal relationships. This is true repentance. Against you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This is not diminishing the impact of our sin on others, but recognizing that it was our despising of God and his good design for our lives that allowed us to act so recklessly, so so selfishly, so, so carelessly towards others. Repentance is the acknowledgement of sin. It is the agreement with God that you deserve death but you require his mercy. Have mercy on me. It involves honesty. It is the total abandoning of excuses. I was tired, you know. I, I, I naive. I had all these mitigating circumstances and environments, all these unmet needs, you know. My wife isn't loving. My job isn't fulfilling. I don't have enough stuff, blah, blah, blah. The making small of sin. David knows that these things are not the real issue. David knows that the real issue is him. He is fundamentally sinful. It's in his heart as verses 16 and 17 expose The internal needs to be sorted out before the external is valid. David is not diminishing the sacrificial system here in these verses. His whole prayer is anchored in it. You know, purge me with hyssop. What he is saying is that unless you heal me inwardly, nothing I do outwardly matters. Pile it up. It's all worthless. Sacrifice. The outward rituals must First, be in line with, must first uh, be in alignment with an inward reality, or it's pointless, or it's powerless, it's meaningless. And David recognizes that the first movement that must take place in him is repentance. And God has convicted him. And now, because of God's grace, because of David's understanding of God's grace, he repents. The path to God's grace is paved with honest repentance. My sin is ever before me. I need you, God, to deal with my defiance. There's no prescription in this psalm of how this is done. There's no pray five times, say six Hail Marys, fast, give, do push-ups. Wouldn't that be easy? Now, maybe not for me, but perhaps for you. There's no prescription, no activity you can perform. All David says is, 
I need your mercy, God. You perform on my behalf. I am without power. I am without cause. I am without hope. I am without anything if I am without your grace. I can't deal with sin in a way that makes me clean. Only you can. This is the space of grace. Repentant need. Confession of offense. Confession of need. Not a list of good works. Not a bout of self-loathing. But trust in the divine goodness of God. Trust in the hesed of God. His, His loyal promises to be loving to us. Repentance is a longing for a new heart, to be made right with God. It is not merely an action to avoid consequences of our sin. That will not happen. It certainly didn't happen to David. There are always consequences. But repentance is a desire to have the cause of sin addressed so that our lives are transformed from the inside out So that rather than expressions of despising God, we are restored with the joy of our salvation. As David says in verse 12, so that our tongues and our lips and our mouths will sing aloud and declare the praises of God so that we are back in right relationship with our Creator. Repentance is the pathway to God restoring our heart. David prays, create in me a clean heart. Do you know the word here for create is the same word that is used in Genesis 1 to describe how God created the world from nothing. So just as God creates a sun by merely speaking, just as God creates a cosmos by merely speaking, he has the same creative power to create a new heart in David, a new heart in you and me. The power of his grace is greater than the reach of our sin. We cannot just leave this in the Old Testament, but we must leap into the New Testament. And this is exactly what God does for us in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is writing, You are a new creation. The old has gone and the the new has come. God recreates and reestablishes us before him in Jesus. David could only appeal to symbolic cleansing with hyssop, the symbolic substitutionary death and blood of lambs and goats. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that in Jesus, God has once and for all time, in his mercy and grace, dealt with our sins. That in Jesus we have one who by the means of his own blood secured our eternal redemption. Jesus is the full grace of God towards sinful humans. And the only grounds for repentance, the only grounds for repentance that heals the heart, transforms the soul, restores. So we don't come via ritual, but we come via a relationship with Jesus. The sin is serious. It required the death of the sinless Son of God. But God is gracious. He willingly bore this penalty for us. Jesus is God's provision. His steadfast, loyal commitment of love. The yes to every promise made in the Old Testament. 
His tender and abundant mercy. The cross is where Jesus has the justice of God and the mercy of God collide. God's justice towards sin poured out on Jesus so that his mercy could be poured out on us. Sin is serious. But God has designed a way to move toward us in Jesus so that his mercy, not his justice, can be our experience. David finishes this psalm with a picture of corporate worship, of a community, a community of restored hearts. And this morning as we finish our time in this psalm off, we are the restored community of grace. Grace-filled hearts singing praises of God, of his mercy towards sinners. And now as we come to these tables that we have set here, that remind us of our common need of the grace of God provided for us in the substitutionary death of Jesus for our sin and, 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 and recreated in our recreated hearts that are applied to us in his resurrection. Let us come now this morning with repentant hearts, not to be crushed by sin, but to be cleansed, to be made new by grace. And Paul warns us in Corinthians that this is the only way to come to this table with a contrite heart, with a humble heart, a repentant heart. So this morning, take some time to run toward God's mercy before you walk toward this table, before you come and feed and and are sustained by His grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for this psalm. And we thank you for the picture uh, of a God who in his grace makes provision for sin. We thank you for this table that you set before us, this reminder that we have that we can participate in, that we are reminded again that we no longer need to bear Uh, the wrath of God towards sin, that we have eternal relationship with you because of what Jesus has done. We thank you that in this simple uh, element of, of juice, that this blood that was sprinkled on a person with hyssop that was uh, spilled by Jesus on a cross is, is, it's the covering of our sin. We thank you for this bread too that represents the brokenness that Jesus experienced so that we could experience grace. This morning, would your Holy Spirit work in our hearts as we come towards this table? We thank you that this is a moment of corporate worship where Jesus is very real amongst us. Give you praise and thanks. Amen.